This is Novel Marketing. I'm Thomas Umstadt Jr. I'm James L. Rubart. And this is the show for novelists who want to become best-selling authors. In this episode, we're going to be doing questions and responses. We love these Q&A shows for a number of reasons. First, you guys actually ask excellent questions. Secondly, because usually the questions are ones other people might ask but didn't know they had them. So you can hear a question you didn't even know you had the answer to. And third, because they're often questions Thomas and I haven't thought of either. So it makes us think and uh, dive a little deeper into what our opinions are on a variety of topics. That's right. We do a Q&A lightning round every 10 episodes where we take the questions that were too small to be in their own episode, uh, but still important, and we feature them. And if you want to have your question answered in a future podcast, just leave a question at novelmarketing.com. All right. So, Jim, you ready to jump into the questions? Let's jump. All Let's right. jump. The, f- the first question is from Danica McCall, author of Flowers of in the Darkness, and she asks... Well, I do write novels. I've just put out a poetry book, my first published book. The book is partly being used to raise funds for a local organization fighting human trafficking. What I'm wondering is, what kinds of places should I look to con- to connect with that might help me sell the poetry book? And also, say, how it could work for a church, for example, that wanted to sell copies. It's self-published through Amazon, so would they buy the copies at print cost and then split up the profit between themselves and me, or would that be up to each specific location? Thank you. Oh, this is a tough one because there is not a lot of demand for poetry books. Um, Americans don't read a lot of poetry these days, and if you don't believe me, just think when was the last time you paid money for a poetry book, you dear listener. So, this is this is a kind of the quintessential marketing challenge is selling poetry. I, I can't think of a kind of book that is harder to sell. And uh, it's not that they won't read poetry. It's not like if you put it in front of them, they'll go, no, I won't read that. It is just, like Thomas says, it is just not on the radar of most people. And yet you go back, you know, 100 years, poetry was a big deal. But he's right. It's just not that big a deal anymore. It's interesting because when rhyming and meter and the rules of sonnets and those sorts of things, when those went out the window, correlate somewhat with people's loss of interest in poetry, uh, which I find very fascinating. I don't know if one caused the other, um, but uh, now the kind of freeform poetry that's common, and I don't know if what your kind of poetry is in your book, but uh, that with the rise of that form of poetry, we've seen a decline in demand, but it hasn't gone away completely, and there are poets who are making money and selling books. So let's talk about how to do that. Um, One idea that I had uh, was that you could sell the book at the events that the nonprofit puts on. And so, you know, as a thank you for donating $100 to the nonprofit that's, you know, fighting human trafficking, they get a free copy of the book, that sort of thing. And it can be a great way of kind of rewarding people. Because while people may not like to buy a book, they love to receive that poetry book as a gift because it makes them feel smart and sophisticated. (laughs) So uh, you can cross promote it that way. Another idea is the classic puppy dog clothes, which is probably one of the first sales techniques that was ever used. And the puppy dog clothes I'm sure you're aware of is where you walk into a pet store and the pet store owner says, no, 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 you don't, you don't have to buy the puppy here. Take the puppy home. And if you don't like the puppy, you can bring the puppy back. Don't do it. Don't do it. (laughs) It's a trap. It's a trap. It's a trap. It's a trap. So so once you take that puppy home, you fall in love with it. The kids fall in love with it. There is no way that 
puppy is going back to the pet store. So the question is, how can you do that with your poetry? My suggestion is you start posting your poetry on your social media site. It's not the whole thing, of course, but you post one poem or maybe two poems and the people who go, oh, wow, that really, really is good. I really love that. That's at, the, at that point, you can sell them the rest of the book. That's right. The challenge with that is that you have to somehow convince them to read the poem and not skim the poem. So uh, people in their natural state when they're reading a blog, they're kind of skimming past it. And that doesn't work for poetry. You have to surrender yourself to the poem and give it your full attention and often really think about the poem to figure it out. And so if you can convince people to do that and they're able to surrender to your poems on your website and it moves them or touches them in some way, then you've got them. <laughs> they will they will buy uh, your book. The other, uh, the final thing is you could, uh, and this is grassroots marketing, but you, depending on where you live, you could start doing the open mic thing where you could go and read some of your poetry and create some interest that way. Also, a final thought on this, although I think Thomas has maybe a few more thoughts, that you, if you have uh, a drama background, if you have a speaking background, that kind of thing, you could start trying to do some, some YouTube uh, readings where you do the readings yourself. That's good. And then, of course, any anybody who's going to ask, how do I sell something? Of course, I'll, I'll say uh, adding my book table to your website and having <laughs> your poetry book on your my book table yes, page yes. Uh, will very much help. So <laughs> for more on that, of course, go to mybooktable.com. Okay. Uh, if you have any ideas uh, for, of ways to sell poetry books and you want to share them with uh, Denica McCall, uh, feel free to post them to the comments of this episode. It's episode 70, so it's just novelmarketing.com slash 70. You can post it in the uh, comments. That's true for any of these other questions in the lightning round. Okay, next question is from Michael Emerit, author of Dwarves of Getalumune. I'm not sure how to pronounce it, but I love the title. <laughs> um, Getalumune, yeah, that's good. That's I'm a, I'm a sucker <laughs> for, those, for those kinds of books. All right, and he asks about cover art rights uh, the rights for um cover art uh we don't have his uh, question here but do you, basically the question was um do you let the author keep the copyright and license it or do you buy the copyright uh, that sort of thing so um michael you need to buy the copyright and here's why the copyright for your book is going to last 75 years after you die so if you die at age 80 or 82, whatever the average is in the United States, then uh, your children are probably going to be in their, their 60s and your grandchildren are probably going to be uh, in their like 20s. So 75 years from there, your grandchildren are going to be 95 years old, which means it's going to be your great-grandchildren dealing with the copyright of your book. And if the artist maintains the copyright their great-grandchildren and there is no way they're going to be able to stay in contact through all of those generations on your book and you can get into a real mess and so you want the entirety of the book uh, to have the same copyright holder so that it is less likely to get orphaned um so some other things on this uh yeah, if they if they insist that the copyright stays with the artist, don't use that artist. <laughs> Basically, this is a, a non-negotiable as far as I'm concerned. In fact, I was working on a family book. Uh, I was trying to reprint a book that my great-grandfather had written. And um, I contracted with an, 
an artist to do the cover and she insisted to keep the copyright and just to sell a license. And she knew how copyright law worked. And I was like, I don't want my great grandchildren having to negotiate with your great grandchildren. (laughs) And so it ended up being uh, a no deal. Hey, Thomas, Uh, I have a question for you about one of my books. My books are obviously copyrighted because at this point I've been a traditionally published author. My question has to do with a photo that I took, and I'm not going to tell, I'm not going to say which book this is, but I took a photo myself, sent it to my publisher. They ended up using the photo on the cover of the book that I took. Now, that's fine. I, I'm, I give them the rights to do that. However, there, uh, <laughs> I took a photo of something that someone else owns. So is there any legal uh, problem with doing that? Um, where were you standing when you took the photo? I was standing in a public uh, domain. Okay, so I don't my okay. Let me first say I am not a lawyer, and if this ends up being <laughs> bad legal advice, it's because I'm not a lawyer. <laughs> what I uh, but my understanding of the law is from what lawyers have told me and what I've read in my vaguest memories is that as long as you're standing in a public place, you're pretty much good to go with taking the photo. Although I would recommend with a question like that to talk to an actual lawyer. Um, if, if you're concerned about it, I, I don't think, I don't think that it's a problem though. Um, but, uh, yeah, uh, talk to a real lawyer. <laughs> Sorry to not be more helpful. He only plays uh, one on the radio. <laughs> yeah. So it's a short question, Michael. Uh, but my short answer is you need to own the copyright and you want to work, you want to work with an artist who is seeing their work as a work for hire. And if they have this kind of artist ego where they have to own the copyright and it's their self-expression, they're not thinking of what they're doing in the right way. They're, they're, they're making a packaging for your book from a marketing perspective. And yes, there's an artistic element that's there, just like there's an artistic element with writing the book. But those copyrights need to run together. Otherwise, you're just creating a mess for your descendants, and no one wants to do that. Okay, next question uh, comes from Jamie Foley, author of the book Sentinel. And uh, that question is... We all know about the importance of a hook in writing, but I've heard two very different definitions. The book, The First Five Sentences, defines a hook as a sort of marketing ploy in the first sentence and the first few paragraphs of the book to grab the reader's attention. But the loose definition sounds like something like an event that occurs somewhere in the first few chapters that delivers a promise to the reader regarding what the full story has to offer. So... Jamie's question is, which definition is correct, and how important is the hook for marketing reasons such as free sample chapters? Thanks. Keep up the great work, Jamie. And Jamie's a friend of ours, so thanks, Jamie, for asking the question, and hope you're doing well. And Jim, I hope you know the answer to this. (laughs) I'm like, they both sound like good definitions to me. I'm not sure which is better, and I'm not sure who would decide that. Yeah, it it is a really good question because it's – it goes beyond just the story. So first, let's talk about the hook of the story itself, the what-if question. Like my novel, Rooms, what if you could walk into the rooms of your own soul, okay? That's a hook for radio interviews. It's a hook for readers. It's If you're going the traditional route, it's a hook for editors and agents. That's the hook that makes people want to figure out more. So that's the radio, the TV pitch, the elevator pitch. Which right? is sometimes also called a high concept. It's, like it could you... also be called the high concept. Exactly right. So, so that's a hook 
Uh, the what if question can be a hook. So hopefully that makes sense. Um, but here's why a good hook, and, and, and let me talk just for a minute about, so that's the hook of the book. There's also a hook in the first sentence where you want somebody to read that first sentence and say, ooh, man, I got to keep reading. I got to read sentence number two, sentence number three, four, five, six. So I would think of a hook more in general terms of you want a hook to be in absolutely everything. And here's what I mean by that. You want a hook in your first sentence to make them go, mm, got to read longer. You want a hook at the end of your first chapter so they go, ooh, got to start the next chapter. You want a hook at the start of your second chapter and your third chapter and your fourth chapter so that they keep reading. One of the things I find in novels a lot of times is those hooks are missing. And with so many books out there, we are just being glutted with books. Unless you have that hook that makes me go, ooh, just one more potato chip. I just need one more potato chip. <laughs> they will put your book down. So what I would think of is in general terms, you want to you want a hook that you're going to be able to get people to say, ooh, I might need to pick up the book. You want a hook in your back cover copy that makes people go, oh, I better maybe read the first page. You want a hook in your first page that's going to make them want to read the second page. So, so, so basically, from a metaphor perspective, you want a net of hooks, not just one hook. Yes. And no hook is an excuse to be boring later. <laughs> so it's like, oh, I hooked you in chapter one, so that gives me an excuse to have a boring chapter two. No, that, that's not how it works. That, that, Everything ha has to be interesting. That's right. Everything has to be interesting. And now here's an important point. This is a mistake I made with my first novel is, like Thomas said, you have to have a lot of hooks. Well, I put all the, I put all the hooks in the first chapter. I, I put too much. It, it's, you know, you need one hook to catch a fish. Just one hook. And then later on, you want to catch another fish. So you put another hook out there. In other words, think Hansel and Gretel. It's got to be breadcrumbs. It's like, ooh, there's a crumb. Ooh, there's another crumb. There was another crumb. And so they follow that. You don't give them the whole feast up front. You make them follow the breadcrumbs. But every crumb is interesting enough that you're going to go, ooh, ooh, that, that was a tasty breadcrumb. I'm going to, I got to go taste one more breadcrumb. And when we, we talk a lot in this podcast about how your book has to be well-written and no one wants to buy a boring book and that good marketing makes a bad book fail faster, this is what we're talking about. This is where your marketing, it basically gets baked into the book itself. Yes. Where every chapter has to sell the next chapter. Every sentence has to sell the next sentence. If I'm not sold on why I want to keep reading the book, I'm going to abandon the book. And people hate doing that. And the fear of abandoning a book People feel guilty about buying a book and having it unread on their shelves. A certain kind of person does anyway. And so if they're afraid that the book won't hold their attention, instead of risking it, they won't buy the book at all. And so you have to, th which is why the initial hooks on the cover, on the back cover, the first few sentences are so important. Because you have to, basically it's, you're proving that you have what it takes as an author to write the kind of book that can hold their attention all the way through Donald Moss would call it not a hook, he'd call it micro tension on every page. So on every single page, there's tension, there's conflict, there's unresolved questions that draw you to that next breadcrumb. All right. Well, we are out of time already. Uh, but uh, before we go, uh, this show was brought to you by My Book Table on version two. Uh, we talked about this already, but My Book Table allows you to have a bookstore on your website, on your WordPress website, where you can show your Goodreads reviews. You can have links to Amazon, Barnes & Noble. It really does help you sell more books and makes building your website as an author a lot easier and faster. All right. And uh, our featured iTunes review for this week, 
quote, I discovered this podcast through the Sell More Books show podcast. I listened to most the most recent episodes and then immediately subscribed and started listening to the backlist episodes. The information is clear, useful, and presented in a way that is instructive without being stuffy. Mr. Umstead and Mr. Rubart both know their business and share that knowledge with writers in an effective and friendly way. Since I'm the kind of writer who usually starts hearing ancient Greek people when they start talking about marketing, I thank them both for this excellent podcast. So thank you to C. Stephen Manley, author of the Paragons Trilogy. Paragons Trilogy. We have some really good book titles. Some great book titles, yes. <laughs> uh, all right. Well, if you would like to leave a review and maybe have your name and book featured in a future episode, all you have to do is go to iTunes.com and leave a review. It's that simple, and we really appreciate your reviews. Good, bad, ugly, your reviews uh, help us uh, continue making more podcasts and help other people discover the Novel Marketing Podcast. You've been listening to James L. Rubart and Thomas Umstead, Jr., on the Novel Marketing Podcast, giving you novel ideas on how to promote yourself and your writing offline, online, and everywhere in between.